Good morning. I wish you all a blessed and happy new year. Doesn't feel like winter. It's. Uh, <laughs> I was telling somebody the other day, we used to sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas in India. We came to Cincinnati and out of the 36 years we've been here, I think 30 years we were still dreaming of a white Christmas. <laughs> Okay, yeah, the glare from there. Yeah, you can just turn the lights off, probably. It's good to be back. Uh, last weekend, we were worshiping with about 10,000-plus students and faculty, alumni, missionaries at Urbana uh, in St. Louis. It, it really was a blessed time, and I'll, I'll share a little bit through the talk this morning. We were also able to meet with uh, Sunil and Gina and family as they were there. Uh, Sunil and Gina were doing a presentation, a seminar on Friday. We, we didn't, we were not there. We got there only Friday evening on their experience in uh, Tansan. And then they were also part of InterServe, had a missions booth, and so they were manning that booth with others for a lot of the time. But uh, we are continuing with our history, uh, our series on Christian challenges. Uh, questions and criticisms of the Christian faith. Uh, remember, I think, I, I'm not sure when we started. We, this is like the fifth or sixth session, but we started out with the history of the Bible uh, from the earliest manuscripts, and that was done purposefully. We wanted to establish the framework from which we look at our world and get our worldview. Uh, we went through a somewhat detailed history of, of from the earliest manuscripts up to the present day. And then we also looked at reasons why we believe the Bible is true. Somebody want to give one reason? Okay, prophecy made more sure. Fulfilled prophecy that we've seen clearly demonstrated. You know, today we are supposed to be living in what they call a post-truth era. It started out with post-modernism, then it moved into post-Christian, and today it's post-truth. The idea being that there is no such thing as truth or absolute truth. And we, we looked at that a little bit. We've got, gone through a number of different questions and we're going through some more. Just to recap, we, and the questions we've covered are what about other people's genuine experiences of God? If God is so good and is a God of love, why is there so much pain and suffering? If Christianity is truly a supernatural transforming relationship, that Christians claim, why do so many Christians seem no different than the rest of the world? Why do you think your experience of God is real and not just delusional? If God is so loving and relational, why did he go ahead and create people when he knew that some of them would wind up in hell? I think we looked at that last time. Well, for, for that matter, how can a loving God condemn people to eternal suffering in hell? And in fact, within Christendom now, some well-known people are, have come up with the alternative doctrine of annihilation, that there's no such thing as eternal torment or eternal hell. It's uh, God annihilates them. And then what about those who had never heard the gospel? Isn't it unfair that God would send them to hell? And I think we, well, that was the last question we had looked at last time. And uh, what about the unevangelized? I'll just go through some of the, uh, the last couple slides that we did last time. You know, we said there were three views on that. One is the agnostic view, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, Second Peter 3.19, I believe, or 
Uh, and uh, God has his plan, and God is fair. God is a God of love, and he, we don't know the answers to some of them. That's what's called the agnostic view. The inclusivist view, which we went through, was that God can draw people through many different forms. Yes, salvation is found in Christ, but there are some who are drawn to through general revelation, and that's probably true. There are, and God is certainly not limited by the scripture in Romans says, you know, how can they, uh, unless they hear and so, unless someone goes. But God can appear directly. God is not limited in that manner. There are many anecdotal examples of, uh, and I'll share one a little bit later from Urbana, of God directly appearing. And then the third was the middle, middle ground kind of view, which is what we had said last time, ended on last time. But then I just, uh, the last couple slides, I, I just wanted to summarize what we had said. So God loves all the world and has provided a way of salvation for all through the death and resurrection of his son. Number two, God is not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. Again, the quote from Second Peter. Now God, in his foreknowledge, knows all who will respond to the gospel or if unevangelized, those who would respond to other means, including general revelation or direct revelation. And we had talked a little bit about election and choosing. Is it possible that those are the ones God has chosen? That's certainly, I don't know the answer to that, but it's certainly a logical possibility that the ones he has chosen are the ones he, he already knows uh, uh, hear and respond to the gospel. Even the smallest measure of faith towards Christ can be saving faith. You might know some, and we've, I certainly heard of people who on their deathbed have turned towards Christ and we hope to see them in glory. In his divine purposes, God uses each one of us to carry this message of hope and salvation to a lost world. And so may the Lord help us do that. Even though I may not know the answers to all these questions, one thing I do know, once I was lost and now I've been saved, set free by his grace. So just, we are going to be in Romans 9 in February, 9, 10, and 11, the second I'm just going to bring up some difficult statements that are there in Romans 9 for you to read through and think about. Uh, maybe we'll just talk about one briefly. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, and the elder shall serve the younger. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens in reference to Pharaoh. Is God unfair or capricious? That, uh, I will just take the issue of Jacob and Esau that's presented. The elder shall serve the younger, and uh, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I stated. God makes both those statements. In Romans, they're presented together. In the Old Testament, they are not. The first one, Jacob have I loved, uh, the elder shall serve the younger. That one is presented right around the time the twins are being born. The one, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, comes at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, based on Edom's actions. Now God, could, God who sees all things in the eternal present could make those, both those statements in the eternity past and they would be true. But then the question we ask is, does God hate people before they are born? What's the answer to that? You can't just go with one verse in scripture, can you? What about all the other verses in scripture that talk of God's love? 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. No, God does not hate. But God can make both those, both those statements even before they were born and be true. But he makes it for us separated by a wide span of years. The first one is made at the time of their birth. The second one is made based on what Edom did to the, his chosen people, Israel. The way of salvation is open to all. He has provided a way to keep us out of hell eternally. But we have to receive the free gift of salvation by faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Any comments on that before we go forward? Pray for those who are speaking from those passages. We need a lot of prayer for that. that uh, it's almost like an interlude in Romans. We have this beautiful presentation of the message of salvation, the gospel of salvation, all through the end of chapter 8. I'm persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes into this interlude where he talks about the nation of Israel. Chapter 9, how God dealt with Israel in the past. Chapter 10, how God's dealing with Israel currently. Chapter 11, how God will deal with Israel in the future. And then he goes back to chapter 12, based on all that you've heard about salvation, how should you live, 12 through 16. So pray for all those who are preparing lessons, not just from that, from the coming weeks also, including today, as Ryan shares. Okay, we're going to look at some more uh, statements or questions. This is something that you hear about Christians. I would suggest that of all the perceptions or misperceptions that are there about Christians, one of them is that they're always judgmental and have holier-than-thou attitudes and are somewhat arrogant when they relate to others. And that's not, you know, there are people like that, but that's not, but it's made to be sort of a blanket statement. I remember in uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he begins the first chapter, first page starts, tells this. He writes, I was told a story, I told a story in my book, The Jesus I Never Knew, that's another book that he wrote, a true story that long afterward continued to haunt me. I have a friend who works with the down and out in Chicago, and he told me this. He said a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me le legally liable. I'm required to report cases of, uh, cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to do with this woman. At last, I asked her if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. And then Yancey writes this. He said, what struck me about my friend's story is that woman, much like this prostitute, uh, is that women, much like this prostitute, fled towards Jesus and not away from him. The worse a person felt about themselves, the more likely they saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? 
evidently the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth, perhaps no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. And that's often coded. It's coded for people not to judge others. But that's not what Jesus is saying in that chapter. I mean, it starts out with that verse. But Jesus is not saying that we should never judge. In fact, the context later on in the chapter, he talks about a speck in another person's eye. And that is a problem, having a speck in your eye. If you've ever had a piece of dirt or hair or whatever go in your eye and it constantly tears up, then it's ir- But if you're going to help people with other people with a moral concern, we need to make sure ourselves first that that log in our own eyes out. Can you picture that as that audience was listening to Jesus? And you know, can you imagine people with a big block of wood in their eye going trying to get a blank speck from the other person's eye? Who are you to judge others? This means going forward humbly, not arrogantly, while recognizing that we too are constantly in need of God's grace. What Jesus is condemning is a critical judgmental, smug attitude of moral superiority towards others. Remember the Pharisee in Luke 18? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this publican. I fast regularly. I tithe all I possess. I'm much better. Lest we think that only applies to others, do we What about us in the assembly? Do we judge other Christians or look down on others who meet in different formats or different settings? Do we inwardly possess a sense of moral superiority that somehow ours is the only right way to do church? As Gulliv Lot puts it, to do church. You know, at Urbana 18, they always have communion on the last day, the 31st. It ends at midnight on the 31st. Sometimes it falls on a Sunday, sometimes otherwise. This time it was a Monday. There's about 10,000, you know, not all of them come for the communion, but almost 90, 95% do. And uh, Joyce and I had volunteered along with about 80 plus others to serve communion. So as it's a downtown convention center, so you have multiple stations and there's four people. They serve by intinction, that is, you get the wafer first and then you dip it in the cup and that's how it's served because that's the only way you can do it rather than have you know, hundreds of little cups uh, and you certainly can't have everybody drink from, from the same cup. Uh, and I was thinking before, we, we had, they had an orientation session for it and everything in the afternoon and I was thinking as we were, I was thinking about our own worship meeting and the reverence and the attitude of worship and all of that that we have at our meeting. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I, 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 that I was thinking that ours was morally superior, but perhaps there was this inner thing that, oh, that's better. And then the time for communion came, the invitation was given, and then we're standing there. I had the bread, I had the wafers, and Joyce was there. There was another two women. Uh, one was... Uh, ex-alumnus, and one was a pastor, actually. Uh, and you have these students coming up. Now, you know, some of them are talking to each other as they come, but for the most part, coming up with a very worshipful attitude and coming to receive the bread and the cup. And I thought to myself, 
how wonderful, how wonderful that the body of Christ, and, and these students are from, you know, they're from all over the world. There are Caucasians, there's African Americans, there's Africans, there's Hispanic, there's South Americans, there's uh, all parts of the globe. As they come, you can see that. And they come, and I, I just was convicted. The body of Christ from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Worshiping in different formats. Who am I to say? Who am I to judge that what I, we do? Yes, I, I love what we do. And I think it's patterned after the early church. But there are others who worship in different formats. And I should be loving them too, shouldn't I? Go ahead, Sarah. Okay, right there. You know, earlier that morning on, uh, that was Monday, Monday morning, we, surprisingly, the, the book they studied this year was Babylon. I'm sorry, Babylon. It's Revelation. And they had gone through the first five chapters, then they had jumped to chapter 12, and then they did the last three chapters also. And Babylon and the fall of Babylon, and one of the messages that, that came out of that was there's a lot of Babylon in the church today. And they actually had an object lesson which stuck with you afterwards. They had these, uh, you know, people are sitting in the convention center and just on the floor and in the stands around. And they had these big, uh, uh, I don't know what they call them. They're, they're like, uh, they have a cloth a tower that goes up. And on that is versions of Babylon in society and in the church that's painted. And they had these little wooden blocks that sat on tables, and they had everyone in that audience come down, think about what might be Babylon in their lives or in their church, pick up a block, and go back and sit for a while and pray. It was a powerful message. There is Babylon in each one of us, if we consider it. Judging. Does Matthew 7 mean we should not judge at all? No. If judging means that saying another person is wrong based on what we believe in Scripture, that's, we should do that. But that doesn't mean we don't still love and want to reach out to the person. You know, the people who say you shouldn't judge, the relativists who accuse you of judging, are also doing the same thing. They're judging you for judging other people. So you might want to point that out to them. There is no intrinsic contradiction between holding firmly to convictions we have based on scripture, and yet treating others with love and dignity and respect that we disagree with. In fact, the ability to live harmoniously with people who hold radically different views, I would suggest is a mark of maturity. Whether it's religious, whether it's political, whether it's social, whether it's environmental, whatever that issue might be, the ability to live together and yet yeah, and we'll, we'll get to the next issue is tolerance. Uh, this question, what about, what's the difference between judging and being judgmental? Anybody? 
yeah, or kind of looking down in a sense, you know. Uh, judging is deciding whether something is true or false, whether something is good or bad, whether something is morally acceptable or morally not, and we have a standard, don't we, that we can judge from. There is such a thing as absolute truth. That's where we judge from. But judgmental, I would suggest, is an inappropriate sense of moral superiority over another person for any reason, including moral failures. Let me repeat that. And an inappropriate sense of moral superiority over another person for any reason, including moral failures. Max Lucado in Hawaii has, always has humorous illustrations for everything around the sun. This is one of them. He says, recently we took our kids on a vacation to a historical city. While going on a tour through an old house, we followed a family from New York City. They didn't tell me they were from New York. They didn't have to. I could tell. They wore New York City clothes. Their teenager had one half of his head shaved, and on the other half of his head, his hair hung past his shoulders. The daughter wore layered clothing with long beads. The mother looked like she had raided her daughter's closet, and the dad's hair was down the back of his neck in a ponytail. I had them all figured out. This is Max writing. The kid was probably on drugs. The parents were going through a midlife crisis. They were rich and miserable and in need of counseling. Good thing I was nearby in case they wanted spiritual counsel. After a few moments, they introduced themselves. I was right. They were from New York City. But that is all I got right. When I told them my name, they were flabbergasted. We can't believe it, they said. We've read your books. We used them in Sunday school class in church. I tried to get over to hear you when you spoke in our area, but that was our family night, so we couldn't. <laughs> Judging by appearance, right? Judging by appearance. Chuck Swindoll has in one of his books, it's kind of a slightly different, <laughs> but he, is, he wrote in one of his three-day weekend seminars that he was speaking on a particular topic, and right in the front row there was an elderly couple that would come and sit and uh, five minutes into his talk, the man would go to sleep. Thankfully, he didn't snore, but it happened for every meeting. They would come and sit and he was right in front, right under his nose, and the man would sleep. And he figured it out, and he said, the wife must be the real spiritual one in the family. The man just tags along, I guess, and she brought him or dragged him along. At the end of the last meeting, the couple came forward and uh, introduced themselves, and, and uh, the wife said, you know, Mr. Swindoll, my husband's on, has got terminal cancer. He's on palliative chemotherapy. But he loves your talks and your messages. He insisted we come for this, even though he knew he probably couldn't sit up and stay awake through the whole thing. And we just wanted to thank you for his being here. Judging? I, well, now, after I read that story, I decided that I see someone sleeping during the sermon, I, I just assume they're on palliative therapy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Judgmental. Are we supposed to judge? Yes. In fact, that chapter talks about judging Jesus. Calls uh, uh, ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. He calls people. Don't cast your pearls before swine. So there's a judgment that goes on there. Who do we judge? Are we supposed to judge those outside the church or within the church? Anybody? Are we re responsible for those outside the church? We're responsible for it. 
They're from the gospel, yeah, but are we supposed to judge them? God will judge them, yes. That's not our role. Yes, yes, we speak up about injustices we see and things that happen, yes. What about those within the church? Are we supposed to judge those? Okay, let's... What would you say? Yeah, and that's... Paul addresses that. Okay. Yes. Good. Now, that's the answer. That's if there is active sin. And now we are all sinners. And we have to always remember when we judge that really that old the cliche that says, there, but for the grace of God go I. That needs to be our attitude towards others in judging and to restore. And the, the judgment and the, if there is need for church discipline, the goal of church discipline is always restorative and redemptive. That's what, in fact, if you read in that Paul, when he talks about the man who needs to be put out of the church, but he says now it's time to bring him back in, lest he fall, fall away. So the goal of discipline is always restorative and redemptive. This final one, final thought on judging, how grateful and thankful I am that all my sins have been judged in the Lord Jesus. And when God looks at me, when he looks at us, he sees us in his son. And we are accused of judging after checking on attitude. Well, this is a, let me just run through the slides. It's important to distinguish between proper ju moral judgments and being judgmental. Our examples in our own lives we can think of. We are to approach others in the spirit of humility, Galatians 6 1, but we are more to be morally discerning to make right judgments. In your own actions and interactions, remember your own sinfulness and the other's humanness, not vice versa. Okay. through the whole, whole of the world, basically, you know, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. make judgments daily, don't we? I mean, on things not necessarily religious, but we make judgments all the time in our daily lives and, uh, and things that we decide to do or not do or uh, whatever the issue might be. That ties into the next issue, which is tolerance. 
You Christians are so intolerant of other viewpoints. That's something that you can hear in the marketplace. It kind of follows out of the issue of judging or uh, judge, being judgmental. True or false? <laughs> you Christians are so intolerant. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Now, intolerance has been associated with religion or religious beliefs and not entirely without basis. If you think about the Crusades and the Inquisition and all of the uh, checkered history of not just Christianity but other religions too. So, uh, but those come from, a, I would suggest, a perverse interpretation of Scripture. Uh, Rabbi Zacharias says, you cannot judge a religion or a philosophy by its abuse. And that's really where some of that has come from. So what is... What is, yeah, okay, that's what we just said. What does true tolerance mean, or what does tolerance truly mean? Anybody, before we uh, kind of go into it? Correct, and that's not what society would want us to. Uh, tolerance and truth have a close relationship. How so? Because contrary to popular definitions of tolerance, which means acceptance, and I would suggest not just acceptance, it has to be celebration of the other's viewpoint. True tolerance means putting up with error and does not mean accepting of all views. You see, we don't, uh, we don't tolerate what we enjoy or endorse or believe in. We tolerate what we don't approve of or what we believe to be false. In, in, in a sense, it's a negative attitude, a dislike or a disapproval or even outright condemnation of beliefs and actions perceived to be wrong. And yet, true tolerance allows people to hold different views without rejecting one another. To hold different views without rejecting one another. The problem is today that this tolerance and acceptance thing comes that you uh, you have this. Well, let, let me go back up a little bit. There is a what should be the case is that, that there is a egalitarianism or a layering or a different levels of ideas and thoughts that are there. That should be the case, but that people are equal. What hap has happened in society today is that there's an equality of ideas, that everything that's out there in the marketplace is equally valid. And people who don't hold to that, that viewpoint are then considered bigoted or racist or whatever phobic they might be. So it's kind of twisted around. It's not that every idea out there in the marketplace is equally valid. It's not. You cannot live life like that. But that's what our society would want to believe that everything is equal and you cannot, you have to accept everything as equal in case you offend somebody. That's our politically correct world. And that really is not true tolerance because basically they're saying, you know, we, we don't want tolerance, we want acceptance. Our idea in the marketplace, however idiotic it might be, should be accepted as equally valid to your idea. And if you don't subscribe to that, it's not I'm, 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 I'm intolerant of you, basically is what they're saying. You, you are bigoted, you're racist, you're homophobic, you're whatever phobic. So that's, that's where it's twisted out. 
to be uh, able to disapprove or reject or condemn ideas and still accept people. Is that easy or hard to do? <laughs> I think that's a good answer. <laughs> Hating the sin and loving the sinner, isn't it? If you think about that, isn't that what God does every day? Yeah, go ahead. And that's a good example of genuine true tolerance, where you accept and you are, you know what they are, you think it's wrong, and yet they, you know, they know that you want to continue to have a relationship with them. You're, you, you know, they know that you believe what they're doing is wrong, and yet you still love them, uh, their family. And I, I would say there's no other, there really is no other way to respond. That's the way God would want us to respond. Uh, you know, in uh, Corinthians, it's uh, that where in that verse where it says, you know, uh, adulterers, fornicators, uh, homosexual, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified. So that uh, we still need to maintain that relationship. If you just blanket judge and don't tolerate and cut it off, you're you're a sinner. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You know, the chance to reach them is gone. God can still save them, yes, but the chance to reach them is gone. So you, you do need to maintain that relationship. Uh, let, let me move on here. You know, if, if disagreement did not exist, there would be no need for tolerance, would there? You know, basically, and that's what the world would want you to do. They really, and they want you to agree with everything that they want to do. And so that, you know, and then you say you're intolerant if you don't. So 
that's moved away completely from the definition of true tolerance. True tolerance does not celebrate or embrace or accept as legitimate all ideas and, and perspectives. The, yeah, and the contemporary tolerance's acceptance viewpoint is simply misguided and wrong. Take the matter of comparative religions or religious studies. The common assumption is that we should consider all religious views equal, and that's religious pluralism, and that's assumed as the starting point in the marketplace today. And uh, that's not. However, true tolerance should begin not by assuming the equality of all religious views or truth claims, but by regarding the equality of persons so that there can be genuine, honest interactions. True tolerance gives people the right to dissent. Now, this is important. We do not have to respect all views to be tolerant. For instance, I don't respect the belief that morality is relative and subject to circumstances or culture. Uh, there is an absolute moral standard that's given to us by God. Yet I must show respect for the image of God-bearing people who happen to hold that belief and uh, respect them as they, they are made in the image of God too. It's God's reality that makes tolerance intelligible for God is the, uh, is the source of truth and made human beings in his likeness. If nature was all there is, as people who want us to believe, and humans are just highly evolved animals, why should there be tolerance? You know, it's just survival of the fittest. There's no need for tolerance. There is no tolerance in the plains of the Serengeti. It's survival of the fittest. What about tolerance within the church? That, that gets a little bit harder, doesn't it? Uh, there are many passages of scripture, bear one another's burdens, forbearance, showing bearing one another that are given to us as exhortations. While we certainly should bear with one another and bear another's burdens, should the church tolerate unbiblical activity? I see Mike shaking his head. How do you define unbiblical activity? <laughs> okay, get the Babylon out of you. Who defines Babylon? The Bible does. You want to give an example? What about certain vices that are there? What about Drinking alcohol, what about smoking cigarettes, smoking pot, unbiblical? You know, the, yeah. If someone is active in active sin within the church that we know about, then we, are, we, we went through judging. We don't tolerate that. Someone is lived. Adultery is legally permissible. I mean, it, there's no law against it. You don't go to prison for it. But active adultery within the church, if it's brought to attention and it's brought, and there's clear proof of that, that should be disciplined. But there's a lot of other things that are there that, are, you know, we have to be careful about judging Babylon and others. You, know, you talk about the log in your eye and the speck in someone else's eye. I remember, I think it was either Swindoll or uh, the guy who was Moody, Joe Stoll, in one of the books, there's this issue of Halloween and celebrating Halloween, and some people think it's wrong, and, the, and they, they don't send their kids out. And in the, in the other church, uh, watching movies was considered wrong, and they were, the two people were talking about it, you know, and the one who sent their kids out for Halloween was telling them about it, yeah, and uh, the family was aghast. You sent your kids out Halloween, and said, so "What did you guys do?" No, we watched a movie, <laughs> and this before you watched them. 
unbiblical activity. There are spheres of tolerance, and we need to be careful. There are some things that uh, we need to exercise forbearance on. There might be uh, vices or activities that really are not forbidden in Scripture. They may not glorify God, but the person who does them, are we to judge? I, I, I'm not sure I, I would say I can act with it. No, you can't do that. That gets into the legalism issue. God has given us grace. We have the grace, and it's between them and God. Now, again, with the example of active sin, yes, we have to judge. But there's a lot of other issues that are out there. We can go to a lot of different things. But we have to be careful in judging. Church discipline may be uh, necessary in some cases, but again, the goal should always be redemptive or restorative. Fears of tolerance. Correct. And God is the ultimate judge, and he will. not directly related to that, but remember after the resurrection and the disciples and uh, uh, they're asking about, you know, and God, you know, what happen, what's going to happen to him? And God says, you don't worry about that. Follow me. That the, the issue of you don't worry about what the other person's doing, that shouldn't be a prime concern. There was <laughs> one of the meetings a long time ago, there was a pastor from South America who was, who was uh, he's just hilarious the way he presents stuff. And he was talking about you know, singing in church, and he, he, he would describe it very well. And he'll sing one line of the song, and then he'll say, look at the dress she's wearing. My gosh, how could you wear something? And then sing another line, and then look at that, you know, and go judging. We have to be careful. God is the ultimate judge. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, in... Uh, you're asked to be tolerant, and that, that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean necessarily accepting. That doesn't mean celebrating. That means tolerating. That means allowing that person to have the, their belief, allowing that person the dignity of having that belief, and being willing to debate. And that's the other issue. You know, today, the relativists, they're not willing to debate their viewpoint. They really don't want to. They want you to accept that, and that's it. Uh, and that's, that's really moved away from the definition. Relativists are probably the least tolerant. They don't agree with and sometimes even violent in the ways they disagree with. Lacking any real standard of truth, relativism makes personal power grabbing an end to itself. And that's really what uh, the relativists want, that they, they want a position where they are right and nobody else can question them. One last question. Does God tolerate us? What do you think? Yes. 
He doesn't just tolerate us. He loves us. He shows us grace. He loved us even unto death, didn't he? That's what we're going to be celebrating here, that he loved us so much. You know, he had to tolerate us because we're sinners. But he didn't just tolerate. He didn't just say, oh, I'll let you have your way, and I respect that viewpoint. No. (laughs) There's a solution to your sin, and I'm going to give you that solution. I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for you. That's what we celebrate this morning as we'll be gathering around the table. As we gather, we are also asked to examine ourselves, aren't we? Is there Babylon in our lives? Are we intolerant of other viewpoints? Are we judging others? Let's examine ourselves and take part with joy of the meal that's set before us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we just thank you for, again, the truths that are in your word. Thank you that we have a framework from which we can look at our world, from which we can judge when needed, that we can tolerate. We know that others are made in your image. There are others who worship in different formats and different styles, different uh, places, that you would help us to just uh, be thankful for your body and the church that gathers around the globe today as we gather here to remember you as you asked us to in the bread and the cup. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that we have in him. We just commit the rest of this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.